we don't have that luxury anymore. We have to really do data-driven policymaking because otherwise we're doomed. This is Data Points, a podcast from Berkeley Earth. Welcome back to Data Points. Of all the manifestations of extreme weather that can be definitively linked to climate change, heat waves and extreme heat events have the greatest impact on human health and well-being. Research conducted by NOAA found that extreme heat was responsible for more deaths between 1970 and 2019 than all other forms of extreme weather, such as flooding, lightning events, and hurricanes. Our guest today, Eleni Miravili, is working to make cities more resilient and adaptive to the impacts of extreme heat, both through her work as Europe's first official heat officer in her home city of Athens, Greece, as well as through her work as a senior advisor at the Arsht Rockefeller Resilience Center. At a time when we are seeing the impacts of extreme heat play out in real time across India and Southeast Asia, and as the U.S. West Coast prepares to face a summer under the most extreme drought in history, we could not be more honored to welcome Ms. Miravili to discuss the importance of bringing awareness to the impacts of extreme heat and also some of the ways she's using climate data to build adaptive capacity and make our cities more resilient. Let's get into the episode. So welcome, Ms. Miravili. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's really just an honor to have you here with us to talk about your work. Um, and I'm hoping just to get started, you can tell us a little bit about your background and the path that led you to become Europe's first chief heat officer. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I started as a, my, my degree, I've been trained as an anthropologist and I studied borders and border studies and what kind of people are in borders and focused on the Balkans. And then I ended up uh, teaching in um, media department using the um, social sciences and the, and the knowledge I had, because also I did performance and performance studies and then anthropology uh, as, as um, a, a background to helping uh, students create content for different types of um, interactive presentations. And then I somehow, because of, in, in there, because of some extreme fires that took place in, um, in Greece, at the end of the previous uh, millennium. Um, no, I'm wrong. I, around 2007, 2000, around 2007, 2008. So yeah, it was in the beginning of this one. So um, it, it, it really pushed me to start more seriously studying climate change and trying to figure out what was going on. Got involved in uh, green, in the Green Party and in politics, ended up leading the Green Party for a while in Greece and, and getting a member of parliament voted in European parliament, the first Greek green that was voted in European parliament. Then I left the party and um, while I was teaching at the media department that I told you about, I left the party and decided to run for local government for Athens. So I got elected in local government and started really focusing on building urban resilience, which um, which at the time it was it was a program that was like a brilliant program um, called 100 Resilient Cities that was run by the Rockefeller Foundation. And um, it helped 100 cities around the world 
do a total bottom-up strategy and figure out what were the challenges that they were facing, both as shocks and as long-term stresses, and how they can build um, systemic resilience, which means seeing cities as systems and trying to figure out where the weaknesses are. So when you have a shock coming in, be it climate change, be it a pandemic or an economic crisis, you have to figure out which are the weak spots of your city so that in advance you have helped them and created different interactions and diversity and backup systems and where they really are needed so that your city can bounce back after it's hit by a crisis and actually use the crisis to transform and to become better. So that's the logic and I love it. And I learned so much through it. It was a total re, like it, it really blew my mind. And I, I, it's the whole kind of getting involved in urban politics and in transforming the everyday life of people in through city government and through creating new types of policies and trying to change things has been absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And um, and uh, my term finished in 2019. I, I, I served also as a deputy mayor for urban nature and climate adaptation uh, for a few years because the whole term was five years. And um, and then I decided that I really thought that heat was an issue that wasn't really significantly addressed. Like different cities were talking a lot about sea level rise, about flooding, for example, or hurricanes. Um, but and even though heat was kind of discussed because we, we've been talking about global warming for decades, the, the, how serious heat waves are and how destructive to, to humans uh, and to ecosystems uh, has not really been addressed. So I, it was kind of a revelation. And I, I took a year off with a fellowship that was amazing, the Loeb Fellowship, which was another amazing um, adventure and gift. And it kind of became more clear uh, that this is what I really should be focusing on. So through a discussion with... Um, Kathy Buffman McLeod, who is the director of the Ashrock Resilience Center at the Atlantic Council. Um, we both got very excited uh, in, uh, when we got introduced and we started chatting about heat and about cities and all that. And we ended, I ended up working there. So I have two hats. One hat is at the Atlantic Council, uh, working on their heat work stream as a, a senior consultant or advisor. I, I, I wanted to do with climate um, and with all like international networks and other um, cities working on resilience, sustainability and climate issues. So that's it. That's it. It's that's, long. It was long. Quite, it was long. <laughs> it was long. It's quite the, quite the journey. Um, and what an interesting story that kind of led you to this position uh, that you're in now. But I love that you mentioned something, which is that these impacts are happening locally. And, you know, the, the impacts on the city and the impacts, you know, somebody's heat wave is different from another city's floods is different from another location's fires. And I think in climate science, we hear so much about the global average, right? We focus on the 1.5 degree Paris Agreement target, which is the target for global average warming. But 
our lead scientist, Dr. Robert Rohde, he loves to say that no one lives at the global average, right? These mm. impacts that we it's see, true. these impacts that we see happen uh, are different and the warming level is different in, in different cities and different locations. So, um, you know, you mentioned the fires uh, in Greece and in Athens, which really kind of raised your uh, awareness of these impacts and, and then some of the heat waves. Maybe you can talk a little bit specifically about some of the impacts that Athens is seeing uh, and experiencing uh, at their particular location with their particular level of warming. Thanks, Christine. I should start, however, what, what you were just kind of um, discussing about right now brought to my mind the fact that um, heat waves more than I think any other extreme weather phenomena are very idiosyncratic and mm-hmm. they're very related to when and where and under what conditions exactly they take place to be able to figure out what their impact is. So that's why I think there's been a real reserve uh, from scientists regarding and meteorologists regarding the categorization of heat waves, because heat mm-hmm. waves are really, even if you see the definition of heat waves, it's, it, there is no one definition, right? It's a totally different definition in Athens than it is in London, than it is in, you know, Miami or in India. So um, we'll talk about India now. I mean, it's 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 really it's it it really differs and it differs um, not only in relation to whether, for example, there's humidity or there isn't humidity that day, or there is wind or there isn't wind, or you know whether there's atmospheric pressure or not, but also it has to do with, for example, what were the previous days like? What were the previous thirty days like? Um, heat waves, for example, that are early in the season are much more deadly than heat waves that are later in the season because already our bodies uh, have um, managed to adapt a little bit better to them. Um, heat waves in the Pacific Northwest and in Canada are very, very much different than heat waves in um, in Greece, for example, because they they are really the, the bodies of the people, the effects that they have on the bodies of the people and the ecos- ecosystem are much more destructive because they, they haven't been dealing with. However, that being said, um, because heat is becoming more and more the rule rather than uh, the, uh, the out of the blue kind of extreme phenomena. And I think it's going to become more and more like that. Um, we have to understand that all around the world, the type of temperatures that we are and we will be experiencing are temperatures that our bodies are not made for. And a lot of our ecosystems are not made for and our cities more importantly are not made for. So this is a good way to jump into Athens um, to go back to your question. So. One of the things that is kind of interesting is that cities like Athens and cities that are in the south um, that have been dealing with heat, it's really difficult to persuade people that um, it's serious and it's it, heat exposure is a real threat to their health. And everybody thinks, oh, somebody else might be vulnerable, but not them. They feel like they're used to heat and heat is not a big deal. Um, but, you know, we know that that it is and we know that there is a lot of people losing their lives. It's the deadliest, by far the deadliest of all weather phenomena. So in Athens, um, last year we had this um, this enormous heat wave, which lasted several weeks, 
two and a half to three weeks. Um, it was the second week uh, heat wave of, of, the, of the summer. And um, it went up to close to 45 degrees in the city. Uh, 45 degrees is 113 uh, Fahrenheit. And it stayed up well above 40 for several days. And, and, and again, for Athens, it's difficult to, 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 to function in these temperatures. We're not used to these types of time. We're not used to having temperatures above 40. If we have um, a heat wave, usually it goes up to 40, 41, and that's already kind of makes the city fall apart and kind of not being be able to function. But above 41, 42, it's, it's really unbearable. And what does that mean? It means that people stay in they don't go out. And part of what's beautiful about Athens and about a lot of cities is that, as we say, the, the inside of the city is the outside, it's the public space. So cities are beautiful and dynamic and functioning and crazy and delightful to live in when there is life outdoors to a large extent, and um, especially cities like Athens. So if suddenly everything retreats, the city becomes kind of a shell of itself. And, um, and uh, so this is what happens with these temperatures. People stay indoors, people don't go out at all. They don't take, um, they, they, they don't take public transportation. They, they, um, uh, they don't go out shopping. Um, so, so the economic uh, life of the city is um, maimed, is, is um, also uh, heavily affected with mm -hmm. each, uh, with each um, degree Celsius that we go up. We've seen um, different uh, research that shows that from 35 on, from 35 degrees and onward for each degree Celsius, that we have extra, we have a specific percentage of economic activity in that we see in stores and in restaurants that you know it starts going down. Um, we also know that there is um, from from these are researches that haven't happened in Greece. These are re researches mo mostly that we ha I have read that have to do with American cities. Um, we we know um, that there is a real reduction in uh, productivity uh, and, and what we they, they call it as a, as a category workability. So people mm. don't actually are not able to work. So the level of, of work and the level of product produce is much kind of lower or the level of hours that people can actually be productive is, is very much lowered. So they, they measured uh, the Ars Rockefeller um, Resilience Center did a research in 2021, which showed that just workability, not other economic um, indicators, costs the U.S. about 100 billion um, per year, which wow. is by far wow. larger than any other costs from other weather phenomena. And they expect that it's going to climb by the middle of the century to half a trillion. If, if we don't do like serious adaptation stuff in the US. So in Athens, we don't have data like that and we need data like that because uh, we need data that will um, get our policymakers to take it more seriously and start really putting more significant measures uh, in place. 
um, because still it's not considered a priority from our policymakers and all levels of government. It's really difficult to 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 still set it as a priority. And and um, I, for example, I was talking with um, with um, the minister for for climate crisis, and he was and I was telling him that we have to start doing policies on a government level, not just in Athens about about heat, and that it actually will will help Athens to have like more you know, governmental policies, which are kind of have a larger scope about things and actually bring a, a different type of funding to the issues. And, and he said, I totally agree with you, but we really need data. I mm. need to prove, I need to prove that, you know, in order to do that, this is, you know, what we're losing. This is what is happening. This is what the effect is, how many people are going to hospitals because of it. Um, what kind of, you know, what kind of, um, a canopy do we have in, in in our cities and where is it less where is it more where are the neighborhoods where we have more people visiting hospitals during heat waves where where are where are the um, air conditionings in the city where are the people that don't have so all of this data is still missing partially or it's not it's really not um put together in a comprehensive way that can actually uh, be used uh, to to persuade policymakers at this point. We need more of it. Um, so so your your work comes the the importance of your work comes in really strongly at this point. You mentioned some of the impacts in Athens specifically, such as um, or in cities specifically, such as uh, you know the economic impacts of each additional degree of of heat over thirty five C. One of the impacts of heat and of global warming that we hear about within cities is our, our urban heat islands and the right. impact that those have and how infrastructure impacts that and and right. so on and so forth so maybe you can speak a little bit about the the impacts of these extreme heat events in a city like athens yes you're there. you're right you're absolutely right so athens is um, a city that is very densely built it's one of the most densely built cities in europe and um it's it has, um, I think, uh, over 80% water impermeable surfaces, which are asphalt and concrete. Uh, these types of surfaces tend to absorb heat and to store it and to radiate it at night. They store it during the day. And uh, also we have tons of cars. It's a city full of cars. It's one of the main problems, mm. which also produce heat and we have also air conditioning in most public um, buildings, but also private buildings, et cetera. We have a lot of air conditioning, which also heats the outdoors. So um, this mixture is really a deadly mix and we call it the urban heat island. And what that means is that these types of conditions um, together with also having like narrow streets that keep the heat in and during the night it doesn't the city is not open to the sky we can which can actually absorb a lot of the heat etc cetera, etc cetera. like there's other issues that have to do also with how cities are built um uh, these aspects make conditions that are much 
hotter than the um, outskirts of cities, the peri-urban or rural areas. But even the suburbs of city that often of cities that often have, like in Athens, the suburbs, the first suburbs, which are just a couple of kilometers from the center of Athens, that have many more trees and that are not so densely built. Uh, we have measured differences in heat levels that are enormous. For example, uh, we have uh, 10, up to 10 more degrees Celsius during the day in the center of the city and in the, in the suburbs than in the suburbs and up to five degrees Celsius. Uh, difference during the night, wow. which is really enormous. It's mm -hmm. re the, the 10 degrees is absolutely uh, mind blowing to think that, you know, you exit the city and as you leave the city with your car, suddenly you feel like you can breathe. Like suddenly you feel like there's a little bit of a breeze coming in the car and then a few kilometers down, it starts being kind of cool. It's, it's, it's incredible. Wow. It's incredible. So, um, so this is the urban heat island and we have a serious one. Part of this equation is also that um, cities are, 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 have different heat levels at different parts of them, right? So different neighborhoods are hotter than other neighborhoods. And uh, in Athens, as well as in most cities around the world, if you look at the map of a city and you see where the green areas are, you can immediately tell that these areas are socioeconomically more... Um, uh, higher, so, so higher socioeconomically, and um, they also are cooler. So, and they have better conditions of infrastructure. So, the neighborhoods that are usually the poorest ones and the ones that um, uh, uh, are, uh, uh, yeah, the neighborhoods that are usually poorest one, the poorest ones, are also the ones that don't have trees, that are hotter that are more densely built and that are um, um, most the most vulnerable to a lot of different types of shocks and stresses right because they mm. are the they are the ones that are that that are haven't been built well um, so this is a very big um, challenge for the city they have to figure out where the, the hottest parts of the city are and where the most deserving and the most the poorest part of the cities are so that they start focusing policies so Athens starts focusing policies in those particular areas because there is a great great inequity in cities and we should really make sure that the inequity gets smaller rather than bigger because Part of building resilience is creating equity, but we can talk about this later. Yeah, that's incredible. That ten degrees difference—it's um, crazy. I didn't realize it was quite that severe. Um, but I want to go back to something that you were speaking about before, which is the need for policy um, and the need for data and research that supports policy decisions. Uh, because I think, in the context of global warming. We're very familiar with policy actions on the mitigation side, such as yeah. reducing fossil fuels, moving to low carbon sources, especially in Europe right now. This is front and center, every newspaper. Um, but this field of policy making for adaptation is a relatively new phenomenon and one in which you're leading in your role as, as one of Europe's first heat officers. So I was hoping maybe you could speak a little bit about the policy that you're looking at and, and how policymaking and legislation 
can help us not only mitigate the impacts of global warming through reducing greenhouse gases, but how are we looking at that through the adaptation lens and, and making our cities more resilient to the impacts of global warming? Kristen, this is such an important issue and it's, 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 it's really, it, it, I think there is a sea change that's happening these, the, these year, this last year or so, to tell you the truth. Um, people are starting to realize that how linked adaptation with mitigation, mitigation and adaptation are. Um, a very obvious example I can bring from India right now, right? Because of the right. extraordinary heat, the demand for energy has risen uh, to incredible degrees, 40%, I think, uh, or some, some crazy uh, amount like that. And now they are, the, the, the trains are not, are, are big, half of the trains or, or a big percentage of the train rides are now being used to transfer coal so that they can uh, build up the energy uh, levels so that they can respond to the need, which is not just for air conditioning and for the heat levels, but it's also because the industry has caught up after COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But heat is really putting an ex exorbitant amount of demand there. So, so India has, has said that it's going to um, um, lower half of its, go down half of its emissions by 2030, no, 2050. I think it, it, it made this commitment of, of um, going down 50% of its uh, GHG emissions by 2050. If we see heat going up in the way that we've seeing it in the, the, the South, in South Asia, in the Mediterranean, in um, the Pacific Northwest, in uh, California, et cetera, et cetera, in Australia, um, in uh, um, China, especially India and China, right? That's like really the issue. And people start buying uh, more and more air conditionings, cheap, cheaper air conditionings, um, that are not, you know, totally very high quality, and they, um, the, the, the expectation is that we're going to triple the amount of air conditionings if we keep going the way we're going by uh, 2030. Wow. So, so all our efforts for mitigation, unless we start working on adaptation, are gonna fall short because we really have to figure out how to make to go beyond. The air conditioning and how to really start making our cities more cooler, how to build them, how to create conditions that are more sustainable and more cool for people to live in. And I mean, not to speak about agriculture and food shortages and water shortages and all that kind of stuff. The resources are going to really be pushed to their limits in a lot of parts of the world. And we have to start now to figure out what kind of backups are we going to create? What kind of uh, diversity, what kind of like um, equitable measures are we going to take to start preparing for all these, all these issues? Otherwise, again, the mitigation is not going to work. So, so that's so that's that's basically that's that's the issue. They have to really go hand in hand, and we have to figure figure policies that are win win. That you know they they're called no regret policies, right? So we we figure out that we're not they're not gonna end up being a problem in the future, and and we're going to be able to have 
while we're trying to mitigate, also trying to adapt so that it, 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 what we're creating is sustainable. Definitely. Maybe you can give us some examples of some policies or not even policies, but just some adaptations blended with mitigation strategies um, that you're possibly considering in Athens or that have been researched and developed um, that could represent kind of the best of both of mitigation and adaptation and helping us, um, you know, prevent the catastrophic effects that we're potentially seeing. So um, part of part of something that we are doing in Greece is we're trying to develop, we created a map, which is called solar map, C40 and Arup worked together and created the solar map for Athens, which has um, evaluated each uh, city roof we usually have flat, we have flat terraces basically in the top of our building. So um, evaluated each one of them and figured out what is its productive value in, in energy from, from solar panels and how much would the cost be and how much this would low, would mitigate um, emissions, GHG emissions. How, how many, how much CO2 emissions would, would each uh, roof lower? Um, and uh, part of what we're trying to do with this is also to create um, energy, uh, renewable energy communities. Um, so this is kind of um, a, a type of adaptation measure, let's say, because you are helping um, people that are that are the, the, the vulnerable populations and also people, especially if we start targeting the populations that are um, uh, suffering from energy poverty and, 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 and putting this whole kind of mixture so that it creates surplus that is given to, to households that have energy poverty. This is kind of an adaptation measure, but also another adaptation measure that we are considering, or at least I'm, I'm trying to screaming about, but nobody's think is, is, uh, is listening much, is that the best way for, for solar panels to work is in combination with, with green roofs. So this is like an adaptation and a mitigation um, um, example, which is kind of beautiful because what happens is that um, the solar panels create in parts of the roof shading that allows for different types of biodiversity to grow. So the, you have types of biodiversity that uh, that are that flourish in total sun, and then parts of biodiversity that flourish under the shade of the panels, and also the the, the biodiversity and and the the the, the, the green roofs uh, brings down the temperatures of the of the terraces, which allows for a better they the become the the panels become more efficient because wow. they the temperatures. Don't go really high where after a point they start lowering the efficiency. So this is like a, a nice little beautiful example of adaptation and mitigation going hand in hand because as you know, but I'm just going to say it just for the sake of it, a green roof is a beautiful thing because not only does it lower temperatures, it also um, slows down water from hitting the streets when we have flash floods or uh, cloud bursts. So it kind of captures water 
and, and reduces runoff. It helps with pollution because it captures microparticles. Um, it um, it uh, creates biodiversity, which is really important for cities, even though we don't think of it like that. Yeah. Uh, it um, Of course, it creates oxygen, captures um, carbon, um, uh, what else? I mean, tons of tons of things. Um, so, so, so it's a really it's really important uh, to green roofs. They they need a little bit more uh, uh, work. Like it's not something that you just throw there and forget about it. It's green. It's alive. So you have to kind of maintain it and put a little thought about it uh, to it. Um, but the combination is really. Is beautiful, and other cities have done it. It's not. Uh, it's not an innovation. People have been talking about it for at least three or four years now. That this is a really great combination. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about data, um, because as you know, Berkeley Earth is a data science and climate science, climate data uh, mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, so, tell us some of the ways maybe that you're looking at using data and specifically climate and temperature data. Uh, in your work, um, if there's any kind of early warning systems or, or other applications of data uh, that are useful in this work of building resilience and creating adaptive capacity. Uh, so, so I use I use your data for Greece. I recently used it in a in a in a in a report that I wrote again towards the Ministry of Climate of climate change to talk to them about Greece and about the ten, the how temperatures have been uh, developing in the last decades. So it's so it's like it I've, I, I'm actually grateful for for the work that you guys are doing. Um, but I, I mean, data for our work is really important because it's the only way to 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 persuade policymakers about this and and um, and a part of, uh, like for example, right, what we were talking about before, we have created a map, a, a heat map for Athens. And most cities that are taking heat seriously are the first thing that they have to do is they they create a mapping of the city where you figure out where the hot spots are. So we have a mapping which gives us each block of the city, what are the temperatures in the last five years, the mean temperatures, mean um, um, surface temperatures for, for, um, for the last five years. And um, this gives us a very good sense about, again, how to prioritize, where to invest, where to put your, 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 your efforts at. For example, right, and we are, as you said, and this is, for me, it's a very big deal. We're doing this summer together with the Ars Rock Resilience Center. Um, Athens is gonna pilot for the first time categorizing heat waves, which for me is a sea change. It's gonna bring a sea change because, you know, as we do hurricanes, right? So, I mean, it's, it, it's, I believe it's gonna be a sea change because we really don't understand and we don't think of heat waves as dangerous as they are. And I think that this is one way of raising awareness that's gonna be very um, significant. So for example, right, when we say category three hurricane, this is like an example that I love to to think, or category four hurricane. 
not even to go to five, right? Let's stay with four. Like when we have a category four hurricane, you never would expect that you would order a pizza and have somebody deliver it at your door. It, it, it even sounds like a joke and, and that you would consider it. But when we have like a really intense heat wave, nobody thinks twice about calling some food delivery because they don't want to go out. They don't want to go out because it's too hot, et cetera. And they say, oh, I'll order in. And who is going to bring the, the pizza to you? Anybody that works outdoors physically during heat waves, uh, of course, older people and pre-existing con- people with pre-existing conditions and um, young children. And, uh, but, but also workers, like people that, are, that work outdoors from farmers, to pizza delivery people, to, to construction workers, which is the first that we think, but also you know other jobs that we never think about that are physical, uh, that engage the body in non-air conditioned and non-cool environments are in danger. And nobody thinks about it. And especially the people themselves. And we have a lot of people you know, in their 50s working jobs that are very exposed and in their 40s. But let's say that the 30-year-olds and the 40-year-olds have a little bit better. But you never know. I mean, it could be the body stops being able to regulate temperature. And when it stops being able to regulate your temperature, the different organs starts to, to go to go wacky and um and and overheating could descend on you very suddenly and you could you know get intense headaches or you know start vomiting or start getting really dizzy lose a sense of where you are a lot of people just have this total fog like brain fog which uh, uh, stops them from doing the right types of things that they are supposed to do which kind of becomes um um compiles the problems, right? Because we don't have the clarity of doing what we need to do when we start feeling like we're, you know, we're losing consciousness yeah. or or really overheating. So anyway, so um, I, I just start and I never end, but basically I started by saying categorizing heat waves and categorizing heat waves uh, will be important because it will lead to policy making and categorizing heat waves was based on data that we got for from three decades uh, going so we backcasted as they say for three decades figured out what were the types of air masses that sit on top of Athens specifically for Athens uh, temperature um, as I was saying before, humidity, atmospheric pressure, there are five different uh, things. We measured all these things. I mean, the, 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 not me, the scientific panel, and uh, who is, which is led by Larry Kalkstein and, uh, and Greek meteorologists as well. So they took all this data, then they figured out specific typologies, like I don't remember, five or seven typologies that sit above Athens. They usually sit above Athens. And then they measured, they took the data of all the mortality, all the mortality, not related to heat, average, like like basic, all not average, all the mortality data. And then they correlated uh, with which types of weather, all of these things that I was telling you, like air masses, which typologies are the ones that spike the, Mm. the, 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 the mortality data, like which really, 
and how much? What are the percentages that we see mortality going up based on specific weather conditions? And then they build an algorithm that correlates these things, also putting into consideration what were the temperatures 30 days before the event. And now we will be able to forecast because what is brilliant about this categorization is that you have the vulnerability and the exposure in the categorization. So you don't have just the meteorological data. You also have the, the vulnerability, which is usually at the end of the, right? We usually have like the data and then we kind of figure out what are the, um, uh, what, what is the different impacts. kind of effects and yeah. impacts. And at the end of the impacts, we have, you know, um, health and what the impacts are on, on mortality and morbidity. And now we have it like there in the beginning. So it really is the perfect tool for policymakers. So then we create these categories, we discussed them, we decided, you know, how they were going to be and how we were going to show them to people. And we're going to pilot it, pilot it this summer. And we're going to be able to forecast that, you know, next Tuesday, we're going to have a category, we have three categories, a category two heat wave. So what you have to do is you have to do buru, buru, you know, one, two, three, four, five things that you could do, but also what does the municipality of Athens, how does it prepare? What is its preparedness plan for it? So that's what we're doing this summer. And it, the basis of it all is data. As is everything for everything that that we should be doing, policymakers should be doing. Otherwise, you know, policymakers were used to just doing things blindly because they liked someone or because they kind of whatever for whatever reasons. But we don't have that luxury anymore. We have to really do data-driven policymaking because otherwise, we're doomed. That's so interesting. I can't wait to see how that goes uh, when you trial that later this summer, definitely be watching that. So finally, um, I want to talk a little bit specifically about your background in anthropology, uh, because I think sometimes we can get uh, very kind of mired in numbers in climate science. We hear 1.5, we hear the SSP emission scenarios. And I think we sometimes forget that behind these numbers, behind uh, these forecasts and these policies and everything are very human behavior changes, you know, systems dynamics and consensus building and these very human kind of timeless elements. And so maybe I was hoping you could speak a little bit about how your background in anthropology is informing this work and maybe some lessons for climate science uh, from anthropology that can help us as we move forward with mitigation and adaptation. Oof, that's the that's the really that's the really diff, I think in a way that's the most difficult part of this whole equation, mm-hmm. and um, which is how do you get? I mean, it's it's everybody knows that. I'm not saying anything new. How do we get we get people to change, right? How do we get people to to change behaviors and to to give different priorities in what they're doing? Um, it's it's the um, 100 million whatever it's called question right it's it's that's that's it and um and the reason why that's it is because unless we really manage to show to people that the changes that they're going to make is going to be better for them it's going to be more economical to have 
um, to have renewable energy. It's going to be good for their wallet. It's going to create better jobs because they're going to be jobs that are healthier and their jobs are going to be paying better. It, they're going to live in cities that are more um, delightful to live in, that that their everyday life, the quality of their life is going to be better, that, that they're going to be able to that that basically unless we pers- we really focus on that unless we focus on explaining not telling people why it's important or why it's rational to do it but why it's actually going to be better for the 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 working person and take them with us in this uh, we're really running the danger of getting people never to understand the importance and and getting people going against the changes that we need we need to change and um, and actually going towards more being more fearful and going more towards um, what makes them feel safer and what makes them feel more um, secure and um, so we see all around the world this tur- turn towards authoritarianism and towards strong men that um, that give false hopes and create um, a turn backwards and a turn to um, older eras that are actually impossible to turn to because they're already they're already gone. So um, so th- this is the ultimate challenge for policymakers, for politicians, for scientists, for all of us, which is to manage to translate what we're talking into languages that can be understood by the people. All of the people, different people, different languages. We have to learn how to speak different languages to different people and understand what's important for them. And this is what anthropology is about. It's about representation and understanding different languages. And um, I feel that, you know, I, do, I, I kind of feel like it's in my background. So I don't really feel I'm, I'm actually consciously doing it. But when you ask me, this is what comes to my mind, because I really, really feel strongly that what we call in Europe, we call it um, uh, just transition or just kind of um, um, climate transition, which means that that you have to think of issues of equity very carefully for everything that you're doing, that you have to bring the people with you, because otherwise you have people that are reactionary and they don't understand and they're fearful and they fight against change. And this is this is going to be terrible for us. And unless we keep our democratic institutions strong and and very and no, very like terrible, strong and um, robust, um, we're going to lose not only our democracies, but also the fight for climate, because the fight for climate can only happen when we have strong um, um, voices uh, from, 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 you know, strong voices and, and strong kind of democracies and people that participate. Otherwise, we're, we're not going to be able to fight the climate. More information on the topics discussed in this episode can be found linked in the show notes below. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Data Points wherever you get your podcasts. Berkeley Earth is a 501c3 nonprofit organization producing leading climate and environmental data and analysis. You can contribute to independent climate science by visiting donate.berkeleyearth.org today.